Everyone's heard of a love triangle, but how many of you have heard of a love square? Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today we're going to cover the case of Ezra McCandles. While I drink my rosé. That's right, switching it up on you guys. Monica Kay was born October 6, 1998 in Stanley, Wisconsin. When she was born, her mother was only 14 years old and her father wasn't a part of her life. I mean, I guess at that age, I mean, you would expect him not to be. But when she was four, her mother ended up getting married and that husband adopted Monica as his own and always remained in her life, even when they divorced when she was 12 years old. During high school, Monica decided that she was going to legally change her name. She tried out a few just to see what one kind of stuck. And the one that she thought was more fitting to her was Ezra McCandles. She liked it because it was masculine, but it could also be feminine. She said it fit perfectly for who she was. She started college as an art major and she was very creative and outgoing. She would do such outlandish stuff to get attention and she liked people checking out her artwork seeing what she had to offer. She would post a lot of things on Instagram with her face painted and, you know, she just had like that kind of art. She even made her silver 2003 Chevy Impala a driving canvas for some of her drawings. Ezra decided that she wanted to drop out of college and move away and she moved to the city of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. That is where she meets 33-year-old Jason Mingle in the summer of 2017. Jason was a medic in the Army Reserve, and they had an instant connection. Jason said that Ezra was full of surprises and wild, and he really liked her, even though she was only 19 at the time. He didn't let that bother him. They dated for about eight months. They're living together. They're talking about marriage. They were very happy. One of the couple's usual hangouts was Racy's Coffee Shop. It was a popular coffee shop, and a lot of people would go there and hang out. That's where they met Alex Woodworth. He worked there as a barista. One day he was writing in his journal and Ezra walked right up to him and was like, hey, what you writing about? So he told her cannibalism and she said from then on she was pretty intrigued. She wanted to know what he meant by it. He was speaking of cannibalism in a philosophical sense, akin to the way new lovers consume each other. Alex was 23 years old, who aspired to become a philosophy professor one day. But he was also a substitute teacher when he wasn't being a barista on top of that. He was a deep thinker and a genuinely nice guy. The duo became a trio and they all got along great. Jason even thought that Ezra and Alex could benefit from helping each other out with different issues that they were having in their lives, since they both had similar viewpoints. Alex told his father, John Woodward, that he felt like she needed help and that he would be able to help her. Spent a lot of time together and before you know it, yep, Alex and Ezra started to have a secret affair. Somewhat into the secret affair, Jason did find out. He came across text messages that showed that the two were more than friends. Eventually, Ezra, she broke it off with both guys. She decided that she wasn't going to be with Alex or Jason. 
On March 1st, 2018, Ezra walked into the sheriff's office to give an interview on an alleged sexual assault. Ryan Prock was the detective for Alclare, and that's where she stated that John Hansen, who was another friend of Jason's, had sexually assaulted her while they were drinking. She said they were drinking, they got tipsy, and she blacked out, and that's when he took advantage. Detective Proc stated that, you know, he really believed her from her mannerisms. It's almost like she would like curl up in a fetal position when she was telling the story. He wanted to help her and he wanted to get to the bottom of the case, but he still has an investigation to do. So the detective has to talk to other people who are in the circle to kind of either eliminate or to prove if she's telling the truth or whatnot. So... When the officer goes and talks to Alex, Alex tells the detective something quite different. He says that Ezra told him about that night, but she told him it was consensual and that she really regretted it. Not that it was rape, not that, you know, it was any kind of misconduct, just that she regretted it. He also came across some suggestive text messages coming from Ezra to John Hansen. So eventually the assault case was dropped and... Ezra was pissed. But one thing was clear. This wasn't a love triangle. We got a love square going on. You got Ezra, Jason, Alex, and John. Her world was crumbling around her. Her own intricate web of lies, they were falling apart. She moved back to her mom's house in Stanley, Wisconsin, and kept fighting to win Jason back. That's what she wanted. She wanted Jason back. She was always trying to convince him that all these other men, that they're they're mischievous and they're misleading and they're bad people, that none of it was her fault. None of it. It was all their fault. All of it. At this point, Jason's done. You know, it, not only one friend, now it's two friends? Like, no, I'm sorry, but just no. He told her, I spent eight months consistently being toyed with. I can't trust you anymore. You think they're little white lies, but they build up and they build up. And before you know it, there's horrifying things happening. And he's right. You got the cops coming now saying that there's been a sexual assault. I mean, that's serious charges. You can't just go around saying shit like that about people, especially if it was consensual. Just because you want to get back with your boyfriend. March 22nd, 2018, Ezra showed up unexpectedly at Racy's Coffee House. She calls Jason to let him know that she's back in town and she wants to go over to Alex's house to share some journal writings with him. She told Jason that she was ready to take her life back and to find the old Ezra again. Jason was confused because the two had shared about 600 text messages the night before and she never mentioned that she was coming back into town, anything about journal writings, anything about Alex. He said he got a bad feeling about the two of them hanging out alone and he just, he felt like something was off. He said he jumped on his bike and went over to Alex's house. By the time he got there, Ezra's car was parked out front and at this point, like, his heart is dropping even more. When he gets off his bike, he just can't come up with the courage to walk in right away. So he just paces and paces out front. He doesn't know what to do. Should I go in? Turns out he was waiting for about 45 minutes before he went in. But eventually he decides he doesn't know what he's going to find, but he's got to go in and see what's going on. 
When he walked in, he said that their faces were blank. Something was happening, but they were trying to pull it off that everything was fine. He could just feel the tension in the house. He tells them that he thinks that they should probably go somewhere public so they can talk, that they shouldn't be in the home alone together. He just, he can really feel something is not going to be okay. They actually agree to do it, which I was a little shocked with. But as soon as they're walking out into the driveway, she's hopping in the car, two police cars pull up. I guess a passerby had called the cops because they saw Jason pacing in front of the house. And they didn't know what he was up to. Ezra, she's sitting in the driver's seat talking to the cop. Doors open. You got Alex, who's standing outside of the car, speaking to the officer as well. And then the other officer was speaking with Jason. On the police dash camera, you can hear Jason telling the police, She gave me a vibe today, man. I don't know. It doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong. The officer that was talking to the other two, he didn't see any issues going on and he allowed them to leave. He told Jason and the other cop, everything's good. Jason walks back over to the car and you can see this all on the cam and he starts to speak to them again in the car just for a few minutes and then they pull away. Three hours later, Don Sipple, a dairy farmer, was sitting down for dinner when he had a knock at the door. When he gets up to answer it, it is a young lady who is muddy, bloody, bruised, and shoeless. He brought her in and wrapped her up with a blanket because he figured she had to be freezing. It was cold out. There was snow. It, it was in no condition for her to be looking like this. Once he brought her in, gave her the blanket, and let her kind of relax for a minute, that's when she told him she had been attacked by her ex-boyfriend and she needed medical help. So he got on the phone and he called the Dunn County Police District. When police arrive, Ezra is borderline hyperventilating and repeating how scared she was. She kept telling them that she didn't know her name, she didn't know anything, that all she wanted was Jason Mangle. All she knew. They take her to a nearby hospital for treatment and they notice something very strange. She had the word boy carved into her arm. When the police go to the hospital so they can get a statement from her, they don't understand what's going on with the arm. Like, why does your arm say boy? Ezra, she can't remember anything. All she remembers is that she was scared of Alec and that everything was blocked out. They put out a bolo because at this point, they still don't know where Alex is. They're thinking he's on the run, he's armed, he's dangerous, and they need to get him off the streets. They tried to call a cell phone. No answer. They went to his home. Wasn't there either. So they decided to ask his family if they had spoken to him. And they said they haven't either. No one had heard from him. So police decide the next day they'll start over and they're going to head back towards the farmer's house. So that's what they do. They see a muddy road and that's where she said that she came from. So as they check it out a little more, they get to see footprints that were coming from the top of the hill down to where they were standing. So they walk up the hill and follow the footprints. And when they reach the top of it, they can see a car that's down at the bottom of the hill. Luckily, they had binoculars with them. And that's how they could make out that there was a body hanging out of the backseat driver's side of the car. They rush to the car because they want to see if he's alive. Is there anything they can do? Can they help him? Let's get help here but it was very clear that he was deceased. 
It was a very, very violent attack. He was stabbed 16 times. Detective Proc returned to the hospital to talk to Ezra and he's telling her, look, I need to know what happened. He lets her know that they found her car and they found Alex in it. Well, kinda. Her memory seemed to kinda start coming back and she told them that Alex found a knife that was in her car and started to carve in her arm while she was sitting in the driver's seat. He asked her why would he carve boy in your arm and she said that in high school she questioned her gender and that Alex had picked up on it. Well, Alex was right-handed, so he would have had to do that backwards. So, detective tells her, like, that's just not plausible. And then she admits that she self-inflicted the word boy on her arm. She then started to tell him a new story. That they were in the back seat and they were fighting over the knife. And that he was starting to cut off her pants. And that she didn't know what to do and that it was really scary. She told him it was the scariest thing she had ever experienced in her life. She then tells them that she grabbed the knife by the blade and was able to get it from him. So obviously they're, let me see your hand. And they look at her hand and she does have cuts on the palm of her hand. But not consistent with grabbing a knife like that. Her whole hand would have been wide open. Might have been in two pieces. Police, you know, they're sitting and they're, they're listening to her story about the hand and all. And they don't believe her, but they're not going to call her out on it yet either. They're just going to let her keep talking. It's after all this evidence is starting to kind of not help her out that they decide we definitely got to get the forensic team out there so they can start looking for evidence, bagging stuff up. Like we need to now turn this into a different kind of crime scene. They notice that the blood is mostly outside of the car. It's not in the back seat where she said that they had this whole brawl at. The evidence showed that he was being attacked outside of the car and they believe that he was trying to get back into the car so he could get away from her. And by the time he gets inside of it, he's nearly dead due to blood loss. They also noticed that he had no defense wounds, none. So that means she had to have come up behind him and she stabbed him in his head. That was the first blow in his head with a knife. District Attorney Andrea Nadolf was the lead of the investigation and she believes Ezra did all this so she could get Jason back. She was losing control and she had to get it back. Two weeks after they found Alex's body, Ezra was arrested and she was charged with first degree intentional homicide. 18 months later, her trial begins. She actually took the stand in her own defense and told them her story. You know, her background about how she picked her name, how much she weighed, how they met. At times, she was almost giddy. She smiled a lot. And it kind of reminded me of like a Jodi Arias number three. (laughs) She did a lot of smirking and laughing and she tried to come off really sweet and meek and innocent, but it it wasn't working for her. She didn't really show any sympathy. Another similarity to those cases is they also go into the sex life of her and Alex while on the stand. She told them that the sex was vanilla, 
that she actually told him, I want you to explore yourself, see what you might be interested in, and we can start trying it out. So I guess he came back and told her that he thinks he'd be into bondage. You know, even while she's talking about this, she's very relaxed, very timid. She told the jury that at one point he brought a knife into the bedroom and he used it to cut her pants. She said that she pretty much took on the submissive role and she let him be the dominant one. She said it was pretty much heading to BDSM. Her ex-boyfriend, Jason, took the stand and was asked to point her out by clothing and location. So he tells them, She's wearing a pink blazer and she's to the left of me. Sometime after that, she took the pink blazer off and underneath it was an olive green sweater. And that sweater was given to her by Jason. He said he didn't understand what her tactic was, but it made him feel very uncomfortable. He also told them that her demeanor was all fired up and he felt like they shouldn't have been alone. So that's why he went looking for her. He wanted to be there to help both of them. He was upset with both of them because what they have done. He still cared for these people. Her defense attorney was Deja Vishni. And she tried to paint the picture that they were just driving around. They were going to talk and whatnot. And her car ended up getting stuck in the mud. And that's when everything went to shit. Ezra changes her story though on how it happened. She said it started in the back seat but that he had straddled her and started to cut her clothing with the knife instead of him driving and doing this. She said she could feel the knife grazing her skin and that she knew he was going to get what he wanted. If this is what he wants, this is what he's going to get, so I just have to sit here and take it, pretty much. She also said that the new way she got a hold of the knife was that she kicked him in the groin and he dropped it. So that's when she picked it up and started to stab everywhere and anywhere that she could just to get him away, to get him to stop. When her attorney asked her if she was trying to kill him, she said no, that she just wanted it to stop. So she either wanted him out of the car or she wanted to get out of the car, but she kept stabbing because he wouldn't let go. She also said that he grabbed her and then held her tight against his body and that's when she started to stab him on the sides, hoping that then maybe that would make him let her go. And then after that was a blur. Convenient. You know that man does not have any strength at this point. If you are stabbed that many times to grab you, hold you tight against your body, and you've been stabbed all over, that's not happening. Ezra said that she felt like she was in a tunnel. She was feeling faint and dizzy and she wasn't able to catch her breath. Prosecutor, she thinks that Ezra had used that time that's in that gap for her to be able to stage the scene because she had to cut her clothes. She had to cut her skin. She planted evidence. She also showed the jury that none of the stab wounds to Alex were lethal. If she would have got him help, there was actually a possibility he could have lived. You know, if you're fighting for your life and you have the knife and you're making good blows, you really only need to stab a person once or twice so you can go get away and get help. 16 times, that's overkill. Police found the knife that was used in the ditch that was at the farmer's house. How would it have gotten there? Why would you throw that there? 
I don't understand. Like, if you're saying you used it on him in self-defense, then why are you trying to get rid of evidence? When her father took the stand, he had told the jury that that knife, it was his knife, that it had been taken from his house. Prosecution also told the jury that they don't think that this was Ezra's number one plan. They think, ultimately, that, you know, she wanted to get him somewhere isolated. She wanted to kill him. She wanted to kick him out of the car, and she wanted to leave with her car. Well, she couldn't get him out of the car because he was too heavy, so she couldn't drive away. She had to come up with plan B. She also admitted to taking his phone, but she said that it wasn't so he couldn't call for help, that she took it so she could get help because she didn't have a cell phone of her own, that when she was walking to get help, she accidentally broke it because she fell. And when they asked her, why would you carve boy in your arm? She said, I thought about it. And when I think about this, I don't know. It was just a reaction. Say what? Never in a million years did I think I want to carve something in my arm because I'm pissed off. And if I was going to, it's not going to be boy. (laughs) Her attorney said that since she had suffered trauma, that it had a severe impact on her memory. And it wasn't that she's been trying to mislead the investigators. She really just can't remember. She's not trying to lie. Okay. Her attorney asked, when did you start to get your memory back? And she said it was later on that night when she took a shower and saw the cuts on her hand. She could start to feel everything coming back. Well, not everything because you still don't know why you did certain things. Dr. James Hopper from Harvard was an expert for the defense. He told the jury that after a crime, a person can be very stressed and that can make it hard for them to tell the police about things that are actually in their brain. People's ability to retrieve information can improve over time if we become less stressed over time. Jurors began to deliberate on what would have been almost two years since Alex Woodworth was found stabbed to death. But it only took three hours before they had a verdict. She was found guilty of first-degree murder and intentional homicide. She showed absolutely no remorse. But she showed shock. You could tell she honestly thought she was going home that day. She didn't think they were going to find her guilty at all. I mean, the evidence is all right there. Everything that you tried to show against him, you've already almost admitted to doing yourself. So I don't understand how you can even think that you are going to get away with this. If you want to hear more of what I have to say, I do have a Crime Over Cocktails After Hours edition that is on my Patreon page. Again, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world and couldn't do it without you guys. Make sure when you're listening to these episodes on iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, Google Podcasts, that you are liking, following, subscribing. If you'd like to stalk me, I have Crime Over Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook. Check out crimeovercocktails.com where you can also listen to the episodes. You can check out my merch or if you would like to become a Patreon and help support the show. I had some people reach out stating that they'd like to donate, but they don't like putting their card online. And I totally get that. So I just wanted to let everybody know that there is a PayPal option, which is a very safe and secure way. 
All right, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again, you guys. We'll talk crime another time. Bye.